Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father God, I do thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and to gather together in fellowship and in praise and worship songs and, and reading of your word, Lord. Thank you for the freedoms that we have that we can be able to come and do this without fear. Lord, I pray for the many uh, churches in this country and around the world who are gathering right now to open up your word uh, and to walk through it, Lord. I pray that you've already begun to prepare the soil of our heart. Lord, that we might be able to receive the, the word, the seed that you have for us, Lord, that it might take root and might spring up a thousandfold. I thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray, amen. Okay, so the gospel according to Matthew. So far, we have been introduced to three notoriously sinful women and a simple country girl all uncommonly included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We met wise men from the east who traveled a great distance looking for a baby in Jerusalem, but finding a king in Bethlehem. We met Herod the Great, who desperately tried to hold on to his power and authority, but will, is ultimately dethroned by a child to whom all, will be given all power and authority. And we met the chief priests and the scribes who were so wrapped up in their own affairs that they didn't even care to go the six miles down the road to see if what they had been told about the coming Messiah was even true. And all of that in just two chapters. Uh, today, in chapter 3, we're going to meet another interesting, probably familiar character called John the Baptist. So, let's go ahead and look at chapter 3, verse 1. Starts right off with, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. In those days, you know, it, in those days are not words that actually refer to what just happened in the chapters before, because in the chapters before it was the wise men coming to Jesus while he was a small child, and the whole idea of Herod saying, "Well, you know, we've got to take, we got to kill all the all the male children, two years old or younger." Um, it doesn't mean in those days. Because it's going right into John as an adult is now going into his ministry as John the baptizer. So we know it can't be referring to in those days. The reason I know that is because if John is an adult, then Jesus is an adult because they were only six months apart in age. You remember when Mary was told by the angel Gabriel that you're going to have a baby and the, the angel said, also, your cousin Elizabeth, she's pregnant also. She's six months in. And so we know that Jesus and John were only six months different in age and also, by the way, related, second cousins, actually. So what is this in those days? What is it talking about? Well, you know, um, if you look at this, what's the very last, not referring to the last chapter, but the last verse of that chapter says, speaking of Jesus, he will be called a Nazarene, meaning Jesus will be called one who comes from Nazareth. And so we know that as Jesus begins his ministry, they called him Jesus of Nazareth. You know why? Because there are lots of Jesuses. 
that was a common name. Jesus was a common name. So to identify him, it was Jesus of Nazareth. It was that, that Jesus who comes from Nazareth. And we know that that's what he was begun to be called when he was an adult, starting his public ministry as well. So it's in those days, in those same days when Jesus was about to begin his public ministry as well, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness <clears throat> and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who is this John the Baptist? Let's talk about that for a minute. You remember we talked about um, at Christmas time or somewhere around Christmas, Christmas Eve, the next day, I forget now when it was, but we talked about the idea that, uh, of this couple, Elizabeth and Zacharias. Now, let me just stop right here for a second because I know there are some of you who are sitting there and saying, he keeps saying Zacharias, but it's Zacharias, 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 and you're correcting me in your head every time I say it. Let me just dispel this right now. Whichever one you like, go with that. My Bible says Zacharias. Maybe your Bible says Zachariah. His name is either one of those. If you, I have two Greek versions of the Bible also, and in one it says Zacharias, and one it says Zachariah. It's so similar of a name that they just couldn't, when they were writing it down, figure which one to write. I happen to like Zacharias. I don't know why. But now, from going forward, whenever I say Elizabeth and Zacharias, you can just be okay with that. But you can say, well, I like Zachariah. That's okay. It's all right. This is one of those places where we don't have to agree. It's both. Elizabeth and Zacharias. So you remember, Zacharias goes into the temple to do his priestly duty. And while he's in there, an angel comes to him, and uh, Gabriel it is, and says that uh, your very old wife is going to have a baby. In fact, let me, let me read that part. It's, it's a really good. And this is what Gabriel, the angel, says to Zacharias about the son that they're going to have. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom, uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what Gabriel said to, J to Zacharias of his son who wasn't even born yet. He's going to do these things. And then he says, and you're going to call his name John, by the way. And you remember Gabriel was like, well, how's that? I mean, excuse me, Zacharias was like, how's that going to work? Because I'm old and my wife is really old. And Gabriel says, I'm Gabriel. I'm an angel appearing in front of you. And you're questioning how something that seems impossible is possible. So you're not going to be able to speak from this point forward until the baby is born. And, you know, it says that John came out of the temple and he, he gestured with his hands to make everybody understand. Again, I just can't imagine that scene in my mind. You know, how do you gesture with your hands? I was in the temple. An angel came, told me my wife was going to have a baby. And what's that hand gesture look like? It was like. Well, you know, it comes to pass, and he's, John is born. You know what, you know what I, I think about with John? Like, there's lots of things. I'm not even sure exactly where we're going today, but there's a lot about John here. You know, how old were his parents? 
very old. That's all we know, very old. Well beyond childbirthing age because that wouldn't have been a question. Why would he have wondered that? So they could not have lasted that long after he was born. You know what it actually says um, in John chapter 1, verse 80, that John actually lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry. But I don't believe that he was alone necessarily. There's a couple of things that I think we'll see as we go along the way that um, I've seen in other places in Scripture that have to do with John wasn't out there on his own, but was rather being led and brought up even by the Holy Spirit, which is pretty cool. But anyway, that's, that's, who, that's how John came about, right? And so when you, when you read and you learn that that's what he was going to do, it was like his message, Gabriel said, when John comes, he's going to turn many of the hearts of the people back to the Lord. In fact, he said he's going to cause the people to repent. That's what John's message is when he shows up. Look at the very first thing that it says. He came from the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you know what that saying means? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Maybe your Bible, look at your Bible right now. Maybe your Bible says is near, right? Is near. How many of you have a Bible that says the kingdom of heaven is near? Okay. So I like at hand personally because Near is pretty subjective. How near is near? Is Shane near? Is the back wall near to me? I don't know what near is. At hand, that's near. This is near. Doesn't matter how long of a wingspan I have. It's longer than normal, by the way. Three inches. This is as far away as my hand can get from me. So when I say it's at hand, it's close. And John says, the kingdom of heaven is close. You need to repent. The idea of repent is John saying, you are going away from God. The way you're going is away from God. Repent, come back to God. That's John's message. Turn and come back. Repent, whatever way you're going, he says, it's going away from God. Come back. That's his message. That's Jesus' message as well. Repent. Come back. You're going away from God. Turn and come back. And if you're, not, if you're here today and you're not a believer, that is the direction you're going. You're going away from God. And the message that John says, the message that Jesus says, the message that I'm telling you is repent. Turn and come back. Now, maybe you are sitting here and you're thinking, well, I'm a Christian and I'm good. I don't need to do that. Repentance is only for the unbeliever, right? Wrong. In fact, take a look in your own time, Revelations chapter 2 and 3. There are seven letters written to the churches in Revelation chapter 3, written to the churches. Of five of those seven, the message is repent. Repent. You Christian, have your choices, lifestyles, attitudes, friends caused you to start to go in a direction away from God? Repent. I shall not, as I say those things, some of you are sitting here and thinking, oh man, I, I've known it deep down that I've that I've begun to move away from God, but I've just ignored it. I've pushed it down. I haven't wanted to address it. I don't want to change this thing about me that's doing it. But I'm hearing these words. I'm feeling the Holy Spirit's pressure on me right now saying, repent. Forgive me, Lord. 
Forgive me, Lord. I repent, I confess. Help me, Lord, to come back to you. I want to walk back toward you, God. You know, the amazing thing is, he makes a way for that every time. Every time. Why was that an important message then? Why is that an important message now? Because he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, John thought the kingdom of heaven was at hand then, and that was 2,000 years ago. Do you ever hear that? Do you ever think that? you ever think, hey, 2,000 years ago they thought the kingdom of heaven. It's 2,000 years later. Did you ever think about this? John the Baptist is not still waiting. In fact, any believer who lived from the time of John the Baptist until yesterday is not still waiting to see the kingdom of heaven. You don't know when your time is up. You don't know. That means the kingdom of heaven is near, near. It's so far away. We've been waiting for 2,000 years. Who here has been waiting 2,000 years for the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> Anyone? No one. We don't know. That's why John says it's near. That's why every person since John can say it's near. It's near. Because we don't know. For each individual person, it's near. Where was I? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Verse 2. <laughs> Okay, verse 3, for this is who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. It actually was said of John, and then John later will claim it for himself because the Pharisees will all come and they say, who are you anyway? Are you the Christ? They'll say, no. And they'll say, are you Elijah? And he'll say, no. And they'll say, are you the prophet? And he'll say, no. And they'll say, who are you? And he'll say, I'm the one. The voice in the desert crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. It was probably spoken to him his whole life. This is who you are, John. It's pretty neat. The, 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 uh, it's a quote from Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord. That what, what that was a way of saying was that when a king was coming to a town or a city, um, they would send out people ahead of him to proclaim that the king was coming so that people could be prepared. But also what they would do is they would prepare the road. I mean, we kind of take roads for granted, right? They're flat, they're smooth, you drive on them. If you, if you, if, here in Florida, they're all new. Where I'm from, there's a, there are a lot of bumps and potholes and things like that. And so you appreciate nice, smooth, flat roads. Um, but at this time, there weren't a lot of great roads. Although the, Roman, uh, the Rom Romans did come in and like, did you know like roads was really amazing technology? Roads, that was like really advanced technology at the time. It seems weird to say that, but, but if a king was coming, they would send out a team or a person or a couple of people out ahead of him to prepare the road, to, to fill in all the holes, to uh, flatten all the high places, to straighten it out so that it would be prepared. And that is what is said of John, metaphorically, that he is going to come and prepare the way for the king, for the Lord, for the Messiah is what he's going to end up saying, or what in, in, the, in the actual language, is that he is coming to prepare the way for the one who is coming. 
It says in verse 4, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. This is, this is an odd, like, specific detail, isn't it? Just like in the middle of all this, I'm like, oh, and, and by the way, John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Just wanted you to know that. I think Matthew's just like, I just wanted to let you know. I mean, you think it was just kind of a one-off thing? Is there ever, is there anything ever just in there? This, this description right here, I mean, when you think of John the Baptist, come on, let's be honest. Do you just think of this like wild man coming out of the wilderness, like hairs all unkept and, and he's just like this hairy guy with the, you know, he's just, you know, he's got just like a bag of bugs and he's just like, I mean, isn't that what you kind of picture? It says that he, first of all, was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt. You know why that's specific? You remember the prophecy that about John the Baptist, what Gabriel said about him? He will come in the power and the spirit of who? Elijah. Do you know that Elijah wore this exact same outfit? Do you know in 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, he's described as wearing the same thing? Camel's hair, leather belt. You know, and I don't know if John like, got to a certain age and be like, well, I'm supposed to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So, you know, and he gets, like, he gets his camel hair coat and gets his belt, and he's like looking in the, the mirror like, yeah, it's a... I don't know if that's what Elijah did, but, you know, that's what I would do. <clears throat> whether it was intentional or whether it was just that God was saying, you're coming in the spirit of Elijah, and so you will come in the same appearance as wearing the camel's hair and the leather belt. That's how you will come. Isn't that neat? Did you ever think about that, or did you just think that that's all he could find? I had a camel's hair coat when I was like, when I was like 20. I didn't look all hairy. That was really neat and nice. It was expensive. Now, how about this, like, food Locusts and wild honey. Mmm. I've heard a few things that are interesting. One of them is that it was actually locusts and wild honey. Right? And so they're like, and they'll say, well, you know, it was like locusts was a thing that, that uh, they would eat. And in fact, people still eat locusts and wild honey in this area now. And I'm thinking, is it because they thought that's what John ate back then and they just like misunderstood and they've been eating locusts ever since? And what a huge, weird mistake that is. It's like, well, John clearly ate locusts, so come here, buddy. <laughs> now, if it really was locusts, I can understand the wild honey because he's just like, I got to do something. with it. <laughs> I can't get this thing down. I'm just going to dip it in this wild honey. And, and then I wonder, can you double dip a locust really? Is, that, is there a rule... Or do you just have to like dip it once and just the whole thing just... <sighs> it is possible that it actually was locusts. It was a source of protein, probably ready available, wild honey. Some, some people teach that the, the, it wasn't actually a bug, but it was the locust tree and the carob seed or carob bean that grows on this locust tree. That's a little easier to understand eating. I mean, we don't... In this culture, in this country, we don't really eat bugs. Other places they do, it wouldn't be as weird. But some people think that this is the carabine from the locust tree. That's possible, but there aren't a lot of locust trees growing in this area. So that's probably not it. But I came across something that I thought was really interesting. The word in Greek for locust is very similar. Like, like two small letters different than the word honey cake in Greek. 
which is the actual Greek form of what the Jews would call manna. Manna. So it's possible that while John is growing up in the wilderness, being taught by, we'll see later, the Holy Spirit or God himself, provided with an outfit that, that Elijah would have also worn, and then maybe provided food in the same way that the Hebrews were provided food while they were in the wilderness, manna supplied by God. Doesn't it seem weird that they would combine locusts and wild honey? That's, those are the two things they mentioned. Or maybe it's what they were trying to say was he was eating some kind of honey cake that was supplied to him by God himself to sustain him in his diet while he was preparing for his ministry. Did you ever think about that? I don't know. Maybe it was locusts. But I think, I think it was manna myself. I think it was manna. It seems to make more sense to me that God said, you know what, John? I am going to provide for you while you're in the wilderness, preparing to be used by me in your ministry. So I will provide food for you. I will provide clothing for you. And I think that's what we're looking at. But maybe it was bugs. I don't know. Then it says... Well, before we do that, here's the, here's the question, though. Do you have to live a radical life like John the Baptist? You would look at John the Baptist's life and say, okay, regardless of whether it was manna or bugs or carob beans or whatever, he's still wearing the camel's hair. He's still out there on his own. He comes with an unashamed message of repent Well, are you saying that I have to wear weird clothes and that I have to eat weird things in order to live the radical life? Well, I'm looking around the room and some of you are halfway there. <laughs> you know, the answer is, do you need to lead a radical life? The answer is, you tell me. You tell me. What would a radical change in your life look like? Maybe a radical change in your life is deciding to open up your Bible every day. That's a radical change to you, maybe. Maybe a radical change is telling your waiter at lunch today that Jesus loves them. Maybe that's a radical step for you. Maybe a radical step and a radical change in your life is to take all the social media apps off your phone. That could be radical. Maybe a radical step is starting each day asking God what he wants you to do rather than asking him to bless what you have already planned to do that day. What does a radical life look like for you? Think about that today. What's a radical life look like? John says in verse 5, it says that he was, so he was saying, repent. And it says in verse 5, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. There's something about John and his message that drew all of these people. We're talking about a lot of people, not six or seven or ten, but he's saying Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the region around. Many, many people are coming out to hear what it is that John says they're drawn to him. And I just don't think if he was some lunatic-looking crazy man spouting off things 
out in the wilderness that that many people are going to just go out to visit him. But there was something about what he was saying. And, and many people believe, you understand that it had been 400 years since God had spoken through a prophet to the people. And now John shows up. And John starts saying, you need to turn from the way you were going and come back to God. And that starts drawing people to him. Hundreds of people are coming to John out now by the Jordan River to hear this message of repent. And it's really neat to, to see what it is that their responses we'll look at in a minute. And it says that all of Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, did they have baptism? Did that exist before this moment? It did. There were many ritual washings, but baptism actually did exist. But here's how it was used. If you were a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew, part of the process was that you were baptized as part of your conversion to Judaism. A Jew would never get baptized because what you would be saying is, I'm as bad as a Gentile. But all of a sudden, we've got John preaching a message of repent, and hundreds and hundreds of Jews are coming out, confessing their sins, and being baptized. So John is saying to him, you need to come. Now, he's, what he's saying to them is this baptism of repentance. It's, there's nothing magic about the water. What he's saying is you're coming out and you're confessing and you're doing this as an act to say, I'm confessing, I'm repenting, I'm turning around so that, so that I'm doing something, but everyone else can see that I'm coming in repentance and confessing my sins. I'm turning back to God and they're coming out and they're confessing their sins. If you, if you look at Luke chapter three, I'm going to go there quick here. Maybe. Luke 3. So this is Luke's, Luke's account of, of this very same time. John's out there and he's baptizing. Uh, and it says that the people are coming and the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give one who to has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Remember we talked about tax collectors and how they were cheating the people. Likewise, the soldiers asked him saying, what shall we do? And so he said, do not, imitate, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. And the people were coming to John and they were hearing this message of repentance saying, what, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? And then they were confessing their sins and they were being baptized. In fact, it's such a, an incredible moment. You have to understand this moment of humility that they're coming to because what they're saying in that moment as a Jew is saying, I am as far away from God as a Gentile. I need to turn and come back. It was, it was revolutionary what John was doing right here. And people were 
coming to him, confessing their sins and being baptized. But not everybody who came was coming to confess their sins and be baptized. If you look at the the next verse, it says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they, they hear that there's something going on. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two ruling parties of the, of the Israelites at this time, and they were different. Pharisees were um, legalistic. Uh, in fact, they had gotten to a place where they were putting more emphasis on their, um, uh, uh, more importance on their interpretations of the law and the rituals that they had created rather than the word itself. And they were looking at righteousness as being obtained by how many of the 613 laws that you can keep. The Sadducees were on the other side of that. The Sadducees were much more liberal. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. They didn't believe in resurrection of the dead. Um, they didn't really believe in anything but the five books of the, of the first five books of the Bible. Well, they didn't believe in any kind of a resurrection. So this is how you can remember this. I have to do it. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. Now, you will always remember that. They were sad, you see. Now, these two parties did not get along, but the fact that this message of repentance, this many people coming out to see John, kind of brought them together to this place where John sees them coming, and he calls them a brood of vipers. It's very specific, brood of vipers. You know what a viper is? A poisonous snake, okay? It's not a black racer. It's not a rat snake. It's a poisonous, in fact, a venomous snake. You know, there's no such thing as a poisonous snake. I learned this at the Conservancy. Venomous. The point that he's saying is, here's the thing. Anyone that is in close proximity to a viper is in danger. He's saying to them, anyone who comes into close proximity of you, Pharisees, and you, Sadducees, is in spiritual danger. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee? He says, you did not come as the rest of these people to repent and be baptized. You came to judge. He says, therefore, he says to them, them, and I think to everyone, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. This is really interesting. See, what they would say is, well, we're Jews. Our father is Abraham. We're descendants of Abraham, so we're safe. In fact, they believed that um, Abraham stood at the gates of hell and wouldn't allow uh, a Jew to go into hell. That's kind of the, the same idea, right, of this, like, St. Peter at the pearly gates. You guys familiar with this imagery of well, when, I got, when I die, I go up to the pearly gates. It's like the entryway to heaven, and there is St. Peter sitting there with his book, deciding whether you get to come in or not. Yeah, well, there's no gate. There's no St. Peter standing at the gate. I'm sorry to tell you, if that, if that gate idea helps you, here, the gate's now while you're alive. The gate is now. After you die, there's no gate. After you die, it's too late. There is no one to plead your case to after you die if you have not chosen the gate of Jesus Christ while you're alive. The Jews believed that Abraham would prevent any Jew from going into hell. Also not true. 
So they would say, well, it really doesn't matter because we're Jews. We have, we're descended from Abraham, so we're good. And John says, you're clinging to that? God could raise up children from these stones of Abraham. That's a very interesting saying when you know this. Where John is baptizing these people on the Jordan River is the same location that Joshua led the people, the children of Israel across the Jordan River 1,400 years before. Now, maybe that's not impressive to you, but let me tell you this. In that story, before they were to cross over the Jordan River, God came to Joshua and he was like, this is what I want you to do. I want you to tell the priests to pick up the Ark of the Covenant and go down to the Jordan River, which is at this time, it says in, the, in, in Joshua chapter 3, the water, the, the, the water of the river Jordan is overflowing its banks. It is rushing. At this time of year, it's super full. It's rushing by. He says, I want you to pick up the ark, you priest, go down and step into the water while it's rushing by. And when you do that, God will stop the flow of water. So what did they have to do first? They had to step in first. And then God would stop the water. And so that's exactly what they did. The priests go down to the river and they go in and they step in and it says that the water stopped. Now it didn't divide like the Red Sea. It was, it says the water piled up on this side. Did you ever see water pile up? No, you haven't. It doesn't do that. Water doesn't pile up, but that's what it did. And it ran out down to the Dead Sea. It just dried up. It said it backed up 20 miles It backed up in a heap 20 miles long. It's as if, and you can imagine, that God said, okay, they were obedient to step in and put his hand there and let the water pile up here and run out there. And then they crossed. So then the guys carrying the ark, they went in and they stood in the middle of the Jordan River so that all three million Israelites could cross over the Jordan River. I mean, can you imagine this? They're saying like, all right. Someone's going, one, two, three, four. They're making that little clicker. (laughs) Then Joshua said, I want one guy from each tribe to go into the river and pick up a large stone and put it up on your shoulder, carry it over to the shore and pile it up right here as a reminder of what God did for you because of the faith that you had to step into the river and walk across. Now imagine John is in that exact same location and he's saying God will raise up children from these stones that were put there as a monument to remind them, not that these Israelites were claiming to be descendants of Abraham, but that they crossed over based on their faith in God. And there's the difference. He's saying children of Abraham are are exercise faith. They have faith. They're not just clinging to a lineage, which is what these Pharisees and Sadducees were doing, were clinging to a lineage rather than... um, exercising their genuine faith in God. You know what's interesting also about that story, this is a side thing, is that once everybody had gone through and the priests were still there holding up the ark and stopping the water, Joshua took 12 more stones and piled them up in the river while it was dry. Because then when they walked out, the water would come through and cover up all of those stones so they couldn't see the stones in the wet season. 
But in the dry season, when the water sunk down to almost nothing, what would they see? A monument of God's provision. Isn't that just the way it is? Isn't it like when it's dry? Isn't it when your life feels very dry that you need that reminder of God's provision? That's so cool. I love the Bible. These stones, he says, it doesn't matter who you're related to. Do you have a relationship with him? Do you have a relationship? I can ask you the same question. Some people are like, well, I'm a Christian because my great-great-granddaddy, he was a Christian, and so that means my great-great-daddy was, a, and my daddy, and all the way down to me, and that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You're, you know what? Your dad could be a pastor. Your dad could be a pastor. <laughs> Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? He says, and now the axe is laid to the root. He's still talking to the Pharisees here. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. When John says there's someone who's coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, in the other Gospels it says I'm not, I'm not worthy to loose, John is, that, that job of, of untying the master's sandals was the lowest, lowest servant's job. And John is saying, when it comes to the one who's coming, I am not worthy of even the lowest of lowliest jobs. I mean, incredible humility that John is displaying when he's talking about himself. When he's like, well, I'm the one that is the one crying out. I'm the one preparing the way. You know, he's not bragging that was what he was born for. You could see his humility. He's like, I'm not even worthy to loose the sandal of the one who is coming after me. In verse 12, he says, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This was an, uh, uh, an example that they would know very well that when they harvested their wheat, they would bring it in and they would put it all on the threshing room floor and then they would walk all over it. And what that would do is it would separate the chaff, which is like this um, coating that's over the kernel of the wheat. It would break off the chaff, which is very thin and is very light. Light once it's not connected to the wheat. And then what they would do is if they were on a hill, which is what they tried to do, they would take this, all this wheat that they had walked on, and now the chaff is all broken up, and they would go out, and they would throw it up in the air and the blanket, and it would fall back down. But the chaff was very light. The wind would blow the chaff away. That's how they would separate the wheat from the chaff. If they didn't have the uh, um, threshing floor on a hill and there was no wind, they would use a fan. And so they would do this like that, and it would blow the chaff away from the wheat. That's what he's saying. The one who's going to come is going to separate the wheat from the chaff, his from those who aren't his. And look what John is saying. What is the fate of the chaff? What is the fate of those who aren't his? It gets burned up. Do you think that when the Bible talks about hell or when you hear preachers like me or you see movies and they're talking about hell and fire, that's not movies. That's real. That's the real deal here in the Bible. It is you are a follower of Jesus or you are chaff. 
The thing is, like Jesus says, repent and come to me and your wheat. It's that, it's, it's just that. The winnowing fan is in his hand. He says, it's, it's near. And Je- then, okay, so then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you are coming to baptize me. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so for thus is fitting for it to be to, for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed it. And when he had baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove alighting upon him. And then suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus comes along at this time. John is baptizing people in the Jordan River and Jesus comes and John knows Jesus because they're related and probably spent some time together. But did you know that John at this time did not know that Jesus was the Messiah? Did you know that? I'm going to read this to you. John chapter 1, verse 32. This is John talking and he says, or about him, and then he says it. He says, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John did not know that Jesus was the Messiah until he comes up out of the water. Because it was told to him, by the way, did you see that in verse 33? I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize told me that upon who the Holy Spirit ascent, uh, lands on, he's the one. Who's he? In my Bible, it's capitalized. That, that means that that was God talking to John the Baptist, instructing him on what he was supposed to do while he's giving him manna. I believe that's just my own opinion. So John doesn't know that Jesus is the Messiah when he comes to be baptized, and yet he still says, I, I'm not, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. So why would John say that? Well, even though John didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah, he still knows Jesus. I'm sure they spent time together. Remember, John is baptizing people um, as a symbol of their repentance, um, turning away, uh, confessing their sin. I'm sure that John at least knew enough about Jesus to say, you don't really, you don't have any sin to confess. I, I should be the one who's being baptized. Although John didn't know that Jesus was the, the one, yet at this moment, he did know that there was something about Jesus that was different than him and anybody else. So Jesus says, no, but let it be done so that we might fulfill all righteousness. Like, what is Jesus? Why did Jesus do this? Jesus didn't have any sin to confess. Jesus didn't have to repent. Why would Jesus have gone into the waters of baptism? Well, number one, he was being obedient to the Father. The Father had said to him, somewhere, you're going to go through this. But why? Because he was fulfilling prophecy all along the way. We've been talking about this. But see, in Isaiah, where is it? Isaiah 53, it says of the Messiah that he will be numbered among the transgressors. 
That means that Jesus, when they thought about him, when they talked about him, he would be counted among the sinners. He would be with them. And so he says, look, I go into baptism so that I fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 53 that I am numbered with the transgressors who need to go, uh, who need to confess, who need to repent. And so he says, in order to fulfill what is said about the Messiah, I will go and be baptized. Now he comes up out of the water And it says that the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove alighting upon him. Was it a dove? (laughs) This says like a dove. (laughs) Like a dove. Think about it like what I believe John saw, uh, John the Baptist saw, and what I believe Matthew's writing here, was that a Holy Spirit in the form of some kind of light coming down from heaven and alighting upon Jesus. Now, at that time, John, how would you describe that? He was like, Matthew's writing it down, and he says what he saw was like, it was like a bird on fire. Mm, no, that's not good. No, no, it was like a burning dove. That's not better. You know what? Let's just we'll keep, leave the burning part out. I will just say dove. Now, there's another place in the New Testament that we see the Holy Spirit appear similarly. Remember on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And this time, they don't call it like a dove. They said it was like a tongue of fire over each one of their heads. So each time what they're seeing is a very bright light that they don't quite know how to explain. So, I mean, like a lot has been made of like, it's a dove. And when you, you know, you see pictures of the Trinity or people create logos for churches and things, there's like a dove in there and that's cool, whatever. But was it actually a dove? Probably not. But it was the Holy Spirit's presence right there, visibly in some kind of, I'm guessing, really bright white light coming down upon Jesus. Suddenly a voice from heaven saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The voice of the Father calling down from heaven. This is my son. Why is he well pleased? Because Jesus is being obedient to what he was called to do. You know, what does the voice of God from heaven sound like, I wonder? Do you you picture James Earl Jones? Is that what you're thinking? You know what's really cool right here in this passage? What do we see? We see the Trinity represented right there, don't we? The voice of the Father, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus the Son coming up out of the water. It is the Trinity right there at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Ah, so good. And we're going to end because chapter 4 is another really great chapter, and I can't wait. Man, this rich... Matthew, that's, this is a rich gospel, isn't it? Yeah, let's pray. Father, I just thank you again for your word and this study in Matthew as we walk through. Lord, I thank you for this man, the, the greatest man born of woman, Jesus would say, John the Baptist, who comes completely in obedience to you. Yes, Lord, we would say he had a radical life, Lord, but it was wholly and sur- completely surrendered to you. Ah, Lord, What would it take for us to live completely surrendered to you, Lord? What does a radical life look like for us, Lord? I pray, Lord, that you have 
We, you will press that into our hearts as we leave today to think what would a radical change in my life entail? What would that look like? And what could you, Lord, accomplish through that change? Lord, I pray. Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to, to repent, Lord, that they would have heard these words today, that they would have heard you speaking right directly to them. Although they already know in their hearts that they've begun to walk away. Oh, Lord, if they've never turned to you in the first place, Lord, I pray that they would now turn to you as we've spoken about the wheat and the chaff and the kingdom of heaven being near and the urgency, Lord, help us to embrace the reality that not one of us knows what tomorrow brings. And so for each one of us, the kingdom is near. Lord, I just pray. And I thank you. And I love you, Lord. And in your name, Jesus.